0: We're in Genesis two, and I feel that I have bitten off more than I can chew with this passage. Uh, I, I'm feeling quite anxious about it. Have it all week, uh, but I'm praying that I will fear God over man. Let's. Uh, oh, I just. Uh, it is. Uh, it's on marriage. It's on the beauty of marriage. Uh, it's. A, it can be a sensitive topic. It's a topic that our culture has has always distorted from the very beginning. We'll see in Genesis that it, since the fall, marriage, sex, gender has always been a distortion and has a curse over it. But uh, we're going to have some questions at the end. If you want to ask a question where you don't want everyone to know who's asking, you can text me. I won't read your name out. Uh, if you want to ask um, just from the floor, feel free to ask questions as well. It's it's a topic where I can't say everything in a sermon. So if you ask some direct questions, I'll try. Try and answer them. We've got Ross and Tyler here as well, who I will throw to when the question's too hard for me. Um, yeah, look forward to that. You guys have done a lot of reading on it this week, right? Uh, sorry. Well, how many years have you guys been married? You got got a lot of experience, right? Yeah, all sorted. Perfect. Good. We got the experts in the house on marriage over here. It's good. Uh, let's read uh, Genesis 2, Genesis two eighteen to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make, for him a hel- I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the, living, all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to man then the man said this at last is bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked And not ashamed. Let's pray. A gracious Father, we need you this morning. We need you every morning. We need you every moment of every day. But, Lord, we need you when we open your word. It is a word that is from heaven. It is a word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when you speak, Lord, as we have seen, it is binding. It is ultimate. Lord, in your creative order, you purposed, you designed, you created marriage, covenants between man and woman. Lord, you designed us different but the same. You created us with roles. Oh, Lord, how the curse of sin has affected this. How I grieve for the culture, particularly the culture that has influenced the church across our nation. Lord, I pray that as your people, as your children, we will follow the commands of of 1 John, the, the apostle, writing to the church saying, Love is to be obedient to God, to Christ's commands, to follow his word. Lord, would we show our love for you by walking as you walked, by living as you lived, by submitting to your word. Father, give us grace this morning. Put aside our pride. Humble us like little children coming to our Father to learn. And Lord, by your grace, give me fear of you above all else and not the fear of man. I pray this for your glory, for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we moved from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 starts with a transition from the creation of the cosmos to the intimate creation of God's dwelling place on earth. We know it as Eden. In Hebrews 9.24, it tells us that these things, these uh, heavenly things, or these things on earth are copies of heavenly things. Speaking of the tabernacle and the temple and before them, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the original dwelling place of God, but through God's grace to sinful men... He still wanted to dwell with them, so he came up with a way. He designed a sacrificial system, a dwelling place in which he would dwell in the midst of sinful men, and it's the tabernacle and then the temple. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and man could go in only once a year with blood. And this was his grace to the Israelites, that he would fulfill his purpose, his plan from the beginning, and have a people for himself, and he would dwell with them as he intended in Eden, as he did with Israel, as he will do in the new heavens and the new earth. We know that this change takes place for a few reasons. The starting phrase in two, the generations of the heavens and the earth, that is a phrase that transitions Genesis from one story to the next. We see the change of God's name from God Elohim to uh, Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim which is the covenant personal name of God, only addressing God, uh, only addressing God to his people. His people could only use that. Not all the earth would use that name. It's a personal covenant-keeping name. And of course, in the last phrase of verse 4 of chapter 2, it changes from heavens and earth to earth and heavens. A significant phrase stating that we're focusing on God's dwelling place, not in the highest heavens, but in the earth below in Eden. Of course, God determined the end from the beginning, so his plan was that Genesis 1, his plan in Genesis 1 was Revelation 22, that God will have a redeemed people for himself who will see his face and dwell with him forever. And it was in the creation of Adam that he sets Adam in the garden, giving him the work to work it and keep it. The same phrases used for the priests in the tabernacle and the temple, that they would protect it, protect, protect God's holiness, which of course we see Adam fail, we see Israel fail at doing, and so Jesus, the better Adam, comes and he protects the holiness of Christ. He extends the boundaries of the dwelling place of God from Israel to all the nations. The mandate still stands. The creation mandate on Adam to protect the dwelling place of God and work it to extend it is still our creation mandate. We have Jesus says in John 7:38, uh, the rivers of living water flowing from us. We are now the dwelling place of God. Ephesians 2:22 that we are being built to be a holy temple, a dwelling place of God. It's gone from Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, Jesus comes, breaks down the veil and extends it out to the nations and his church now is the dwelling place of God in which we are called to protect it and extend it. To protect it by upholding holiness and to extend it by preaching the gospel and being fruitful and multiplying through Christian children who we will teach, disciple, all that Jesus has commanded. That is the creation mandate of Genesis 1. Of course, what we see that follows in the fall is that our duty, our aim was to, uh, our, our duty was to extend the dwelling place of God and to uh, take forth his dwelling place to the world. But that has failed. The fall has happened. And we see consistently a breaking down of God's Law, God's order, God's purpose. And the first, uh, the first few things we see is a relationship breakdown between first us and God, but us and one another. One of the great effects of the fall is that marriage and sex and gender was hindered or rather cursed. It was never going to function in the way it should. Right after Cain and Abel, the sin of murder, we see Lamech, Lamech however you say it, and he collects women as prizes, and he has women as slaves. It's the first time we see a man with multiple wives, except they probably weren't his wives. He collect them and he bragged about them. We see this all the way through Genesis. If we're not looking at Lamech, we're looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, who was destroyed for sexual immorality. If we're not looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, we're looking at God's chosen person in Abraham, who sleeps with his slave woman. Hagar, as we looked at in the, the overview of Genesis, Richard Phillips, who did three and a half years of, in Genesis, 300 sermons, he said, God has injected into human relationships a poison for which he is alone, the antidote. After the fall, we broke God's commandment as we were separated from the dwelling place and God cursed man, serpent, and woman. And in so doing, there was a division. In Genesis 3.16, we see that woman, the curse on woman, is that she will have a desire to dominate her husband, which will be contrary to her husband, and he will rule over her. The, the, the very function of what God designed for man and woman to complement one, one another will be butting heads instead. And it is only through finding the Lord as the antidote, coming to the Lord, will we find a break uh, a a Freedom, a refinement of marriage, a refinement of who we are as male and female. Today, my aim is to preach faithfully without trying to go on too many tangents uh, into cultural issues until the end. We'll see how I go. I, I am passionate about this topic and I may get distracted and I'll try and pull myself back. So at the end, we'll look at culture and we'll look at how our culture has shifted this. We want to mainly focus on the scriptures and what the scriptures say about marriage, sex and gender. We want to look at, uh, we want to have a good foundation of what marriage, the intention of marriage was. MacArthur gives six reasons. John MacArthur, he's a, he's a pastor in the United States. Six biblical pictures. And of course, they all start with P because that's what pastors do in America procreation, uh, this is in no particular order, don't, don't rank these, procreation, pleasure, purity, provision, partnership, and the picture of Christ and the church. So when we look at those, I'll say them again, procreation, pleasure, purity, provision, partnership, and the picture of Christ and the church. These are what the biblical picture of marriage is for, these six things. You can look throughout the whole of Scripture, you'll see them, uh, you'd see them there. I'm going to touch on some of them, probably not all of them, but we're going to focus on the last one, the picture of Christ and the church. That is what we see here very clearly in Genesis 2. It's what we see Jesus teach. It's what we see Paul teach so clearly that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So we're in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Well, what we start with is that covenant name of God. So we know this is a personal talking to Adam or a personal interaction uh, as God is thinking, these are my people. This is who I've designed. He's in my dwelling place. So this is the personal uh, relationship that Adam has with God. And then we see that God says something. And as we have seen throughout Genesis with the phrase God said in Genesis 1, uh, being there 10 times, it's important that we trust and know that what God has said is the ultimate. There is nothing higher. There is nothing that we can change about what God has said. What he says stands. And what he says here is different to what he has said before. He's not creating something. And he's not affirming the goodness of the creation. He's actually saying that it's not good. The first time and it's almost shocking and if we were to read Genesis and I can imagine as the Israelites first got this, this book, this law given to them and they read it, it would have been a shock to see everything else up to this point has been good but now it's not good and it's not good because man is alone. Now, one reason that it might not be good is that man is made, and we saw this in Genesis 1, man is made in the image and likeness of God, and the image and likeness of God is plurality. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One reason that it's not good is because it doesn't image God as it should. Man on his own does not image God as it should. What we need to be very careful of with this passage is how we interpret it. Now, many people might grab this passage and say, it's not good for man to be alone. That means uh, this is speaking about community and friendship. That's an important concept. And yes, we are created in the image and likeness of God, who is a relational God within the Trinity. So therefore, we are created to be in community. But this passage is not speaking about general community. It's speaking about specific relationship, the relationship of marriage. If we were to turn to some passages that make us uh, understand, okay, God creates us to be relational, as in terms of like family and friendship. Of course, Genesis 1:27 about being made in the image and likeness of a plural God. Let us make man in our image. That is one passage we could turn to that would affirm that we are created as relational beings. The other that I, always, I often turn to is the end of Mark 10, and Mark 10 is where the disciples go, we've left everything for you, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, those who have left, father, mother, brother, sister, house, land, will receive in this life and in the next, mother, brother, sister, house, and land. And he's speaking of the church. When we look at relational, community-based friendship or family Yes, we are created to be relational beings and the passages we should turn to are the ones that speak on this, Mark 10 and Genesis 1, This one, to say that man, it is not good for man to be alone, we could go down a path that is probably not helpful. We could go down a path that teaches that this is all about sameness and this is the argument of the liberal church that's trying to affirm same-sex marriage within the church. They say that this passage is about sameness and God is creating a relationship or a friendship that is about the direct, uh, uh, the, 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 um, the similarities of one another. But if we see the very next phrase in this, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's a significant phrase that changes it from being just an ordinary relationship to a specific, particular relationship. And the relationship that we have is one that is a matching opposite. This phrase, helper fit for him, needs explanation. And, and what we see as we unpack it is matching opposites. A matching opposite. See so what we see in God, it, what we see in the very next section, which we'll touch on briefly, is that God puts the animals before Adam and it's to show that they're not alike it's to show that animals are not image bearers of God Adam needs an image bearer of God but he needs an image bearer of God that completes the image bearing of God which is not directly the same as him which is something different to him which complements the gifts that he has which has different functions it's not the same body type it's, it's, it's difference. This passage is speaking about a helper that is matching but different. A helper that is matching but different. A different helper that will complement him. Where he is lacking, she will have. Where she is lacking, he will have. And in the union of male and female, there is a great image of God shown as they complement one another just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit complement one another. So a helper fit for him is one of matching opposites. I titled this sermon, and I don't normally tell anyone what my titles are. It's normally for me. The doxology of sex, which is the praise of God in sex. He is glorified in both male and female. He is represented in both male and female. And it is through the coming together of male and female that we see worship to God. It's through male and female functioning in their roles that God has given them that we see worship to God. It's in the glory of masculinity and the glory of femininity, femininity that we see the glory of God. And we should love both in the church. We should celebrate both. And we should call men to uphold biblical masculinity. And we should call women to uphold Biblical feminine, femininity. The other phrase that needs clarifying is helper. People get upset about this phrase helper, a helper fit for him. The work that Adam has, we've talked about earlier, to work it and keep it, to be fruitful and multiply to protect the dwelling place of God, to extend the dwelling place of God. This is the role and the process in which God is, uh, Adam is going to undertake and he needs a helper to do this work with. The helper that will do this work with him is one who is different to him. Now, it's interesting to note that God refers to himself as the helper of Israel. God in Exodus 18:4 and Deuteronomy 33:7 and David in 1 Samuel 7:14, God refers to himself as a helper. Just as we all bear the image of God, it is particular that as the woman as a helper, she is reflecting God in her helping. It is not a lowly position. It's not a position that is lesser than the man. It is a position that is of great honor, and we see Jesus uphold this position very clearly in his submission to the Father on earth. So God creates a matching opposite, and she is dependent, and he is dependent. Adam and Eve are both dependent. They're both dependent creatures, and they're dependent on God, but they're also dependent on one another. In the simplest way we could picture this is that Adam, uh, Eve, is created from Adam. Without Adam, Eve would not be created. But without Eve, no man would be born. That is the simplest picture we have in Scripture of how we are dependent on the opposite sex. And, of course, there are many more. Be fruitful and multiply. No one can do that on their own. Of course, the poison that runs between man and woman after the fall, the curse, is to have dominance and mastery. Who will rule is what we see in Genesis 3.16. What we see in the fall is power, abuse, and they go forth into all of history. But in Christ, we see the perfect helper, who, although equal to the Father, submits, in Christ we see the perfect leader in laying down his life for the bride the church. In Christ and only in Christ is there grace for man and woman to return to their rightful roles in which they were made for the function in which they are made to function in best. God knowing God the Son is the only antidote for the curse of sin that runs deep within the relationship dysfunction of male and female. Verse 19, almost as like whiplash, like it feels like we're changing stories. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But Adam, there was none found. Found a but Adam, there was not, not found a helper fit for him. It feels like it's whiplash. It feels like we've changed story, but there is something significant here going on. And I've mentioned it before that Adam is uh, not aware of his loneliness. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, Adam is not yet aware of the loneliness, and God presents to him everything that was created similar to him. Notice that it starts with out of the ground, God made every living creature. Both man and Adam, uh, both man and animal were fashioned out of the ground. They were created in the same way. If we see Genesis 1, they were breathed life into. So, what's different between man and Adam, uh, man and animal? The difference is animals aren't made in the image of God. The difference is they don't bear his image. They can't interact with him. Animals do exactly as God has ordered them to do and nothing more and nothing less. Adam can have a relationship, a personal relationship with God. He is created in the image of God and in order for him to realize this, God presents the animals to him. He names them to assert his authority over them as a king would and as God did in Genesis 1 and shows Adam that he is both ruler and to have dominion over these, crea- these creations and that they are not fit for him as a helper. It's also a teaching for Israel that animals are lesser than them because the great tragedy of the pagan world is that they worship creatures. They worship creation. And he presents them before man so that man can see why are you worshipping something, worshiping something lesser than you? Why are you worshipping something you should have dominion over? And the Israelites would have been heavily rebuked as they read that Adam named them and none of them were fit to be his helper. It also teaches that Dogs are not man's best friend. Sorry, Steph. (laughs) Uh, That is uh, a key theological position that I hold to. And um, I said no tangents. I'm not going down that path. What we need as man's best friend is someone fit for him someone fit for him, someone that will complement him, someone that will help him achieve the task that God has given to keep it and work it, to multiply and fill the earth. And that is where we come to the fashioning of woman. In verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, was made, uh, that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is an incredibly beautiful picture. It's the first like marriage. After creation, he brings her to the man, and it's this presenting. It's beautifully written. It's a beautiful picture that we hold. It's God's grace in putting Adam to sleep. He causes Adam to rest, and in his rest, God fashions with precision. He does surgery with precision, with art and finesse, where he's going to create create something that is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, that is going to be so unique, so special that he hasn't seen anything like it yet. Remember, Adam's seen all of creation. It's all just been presented to him. And he is now about to see something that is beyond what he can imagine. Now, what's beautiful about this passage is we have clarification on what it's speaking about. 1 Corinthians 11.8, 1 Timothy 2.13 is, is Paul's teaching on this very passage, what it means for a woman to be taken from man. And what we need to understand as we unpack this is that in God's creation, he ordered things. We've seen that. In Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, there was... A a deliberate order in which he created things, and that is how he purposed things. So in, in creating uh, Eve from man, he set something in place. He set out roles. He set out equality but roles. So in 1 Corinthians uh, one Corinthians 11, 8, when, God, when uh, Paul is speaking about headship, he he says that it's God's creative order because man was created first, that this was a symbolism of the function that he will have in his his life, that he will be head over the woman. So in the creative order of man and woman, that man will be first because he was created first. And then we see again also in Paul's writings, 1 Timothy 2.13, that when speaking about authority in the church, which flows into the family life, he says that because man was created before Eve, he will have authority in the church and in the family. So we have a deliberate wording here, a deliberate symbolism, that when God puts Adam to sleep and fashions Eve, not from the dust, but from man, he's creating roles for them. I love how Matthew Henry puts it. i am just going to find my quote. Uh, not made out of the head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but made out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It's an incredible picture of this fashioning. We can't take Genesis 2 and ignore the fact that Adam was not made out of dust. We've got to realize she was made out of man for a specific purpose, and it's a design of roles we call it complementarianism a long long word that i have no idea how to spell and what we see in this picture is that man has a role and woman has a role they're both equal to god but they both represent something they both picture picture christ in ephesians 2 in ephesians 5 we have the most ex- expanding, expansive teaching on the picture of Christ and the church, male and female, husband and wife. We see this beautiful picture. So when God says that man will lead and have authority and have head and woman will be submissive, he's designing an order in which they've been created for. You've been designed to do that. You've been fashioned to live that way. And it represents and it glorifies and it images Christ. We see that so clearly when Paul says that husbands should give up their life, sacrifice, it's sacrificial headship, sacrificial leadership, give up their lives for the sake of their wife as Christ did for the church. And we see that women should be, or wives should be submissive to their husband as the church is to Christ There is this great image that if we lose the roles of men and women in the church, if we throw them out and say, you can do whatever you like, you can function as you desire, you will miss the greatest metaphor in scripture of God and his people, Christ and the church. You will miss it completely. Because God has always said that I am, he is the bridegroom and Israel were his bride and they They have rebelled against him. They have pushed against him. They have turned from him. He calls them a harlot. And he uses harsher words than that in Ezekiel 16. But then Christ comes and Christ claims his true people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he sacrifices himself and brings them in. He sanctifies them. It says by the washing of water, he sanctifies them and brings her in, the church in, as his bride. So what we see in our world today because of this curse upon men and women is men become passive, lazy, and indifferent. And in so doing, don't show the Christ who is active, disciplined, gracious, and sacrificial. Or men become abusive, harsh, and they don't show the Christ who is lowly, gentle, and compassionate. Or on the other hand, women become demanding, nagging, and ruling. And that does not show the Christ who is submissive to the Father or the church who is submissive to Christ. This is what sin has done to taint us. This is what sin has done to cause dysfunction in our relationships and in our marriages. And Christ is the only antidote, the only answer in order for us to be restored to this rightful place of men and woman. It's the only place in which we can be brought back to that. And, of course, in naming woman, in naming her, he's stating that she is his helper. He's claiming ownership. And I know people are going to kick back at that. Maybe not here, but I know people would kick back at that in other places. But Christ owns us. Christ purchased us. It is this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. And we need to come back as the church. We need to uphold the vision of Genesis. The vision of Genesis 2 in a world that is spiraling out of control as we see through the whole book of Genesis. Dysfunctional relationship. We're going to preach through the whole book. And you will see the greatest effect is the relationship between man and woman. We are in no different state today in our world. It is the same back then. We've thrown out God's commands. We've chucked it away and we say, we'll do it ourselves. We'll live in however we want. We don't care what God has said. And we will see relationship disorder over and over as men become passive or abusive and women become ruling or nagging. And we see this failing of relationship until Christ comes and shows us, shows us how beautiful His relationship is with the church. Shows us how beautiful his relationship is with the Father. And we say there is such thing as equality and headship and submission. They are not opposites. They work together. They are friends. Equality and headship and submission are friends, not opposites. So practically... Practically, we don't really have time, but maybe we can answer some questions. Practically, how headship and submission plays out. But we need to remember what the creation mandate was, to protect it or to to work it and keep it. The creation mandate still stands. Jesus confirmed it in the Great Commission, go forth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them uh, all that I have commanded them, all that I have commanded you. We see that so clearly that Jesus is affirming Genesis 1's mandate of extending the borders of Eden, extending the dwelling place of God. Well, through marriage, through man and woman coming together, their role is still the same. Their mandate is still there. It is to evangelize the lost, to have children and teach them all that Jesus has commanded. And the beauty of this, The beauty of the Great Commission is that although the creation order before the fall was for man to marry, and that was the norm, and because of the fall we've seen fractures in that and we are tainted and now we can no longer uphold those positions and we have different desires, there is a place for singleness in the church, which we see so clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. So not only is this mandate, this commission fulfilled in husband and wives complementing one another, but it's fulfilled within the church as men and women complement one another, as we use our different gifts and our different abilities to function in roles that serve the church and build up the church and extend the dwelling place of God through the evangelization of the world. When we come, it's not about our careers. In in headship and submission, it's not about fighting over whose career takes precedence. It's about the kingdom of God, protecting it and extending it. And men, it is your responsibility to keep your family on that task. It is your responsibility to lead them and encourage them that they may continue in working and keeping in protecting and extending, in upholding the holiness of Christ and witnessing to the broken world around us. In verse 23, man is presented woman, or just before that, he's just seen her and it's it's the wedding of the first man and the first woman. It is public. It is a public declaration of their love and commitment. And his song is in many sense a a song of vows before her. And he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. His promise is I will treat you as I treat myself. I will not harm you for I will not harm myself. If I am broken, if I lose you, if you leave me, I will be broken. My flesh will be torn apart. His his vows are this is forever. Forever. This is for this life. This is for until I die. The first marriage is God presenting Eve as her father to Adam and there's a beautiful song of praise to God in the promises in which Adam makes to her. It's public and it's beautiful. And it says at the end, they were both naked and unashamed. And I was thinking about this and spending a lot of time on our understanding of beauty there was a there's a beautiful concealed naked beauty here and that sounds like it contradicts itself concealed naked beauty but there was a there was a purity among adam and eve that it was not sensual sensual is excessive sensual is is despicable in the eyes of god but when he saw Eve, he saw a concealed naked beauty, a, a beauty where he honoured her as his flesh and bone. And I have no idea how to articulate that mystery. A concealed naked beauty. It's like this Song of Songs in Solomon after the fall, of course. Solomon is seeing his bride in Song of Songs 4, and as he describes her, he's describing her under her veil. And the veil is over her face and she is covered and he's describing her beauty as if it is concealed. And it's incredible. Would we be a culture, would we be men and women who despise sensuality and hate it like Christ hates it and love concealed beauty and promote concealed beauty? In verse 24, the marriage continues, but it's God's speaking. These are God's words about what marriage brings. We've seen the husband or man sing a song of praise and vows that this is my bone, this is my flesh. This is the one whom, if died or separated, it would be like me dying. Covenants and promises of long-term relationship. And God confirms this in his word as he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is probably a good time to push against the cultural mandate. As we get to this beautiful summary one sentence Jesus uses it as well Jesus refers back to it Paul refers back to it here's what marriage is therefore a man leaves his father and mother we're speaking of loyalty if you look through the whole of Genesis most of the time the men stayed with their father and mother and the woman left so we're speaking about loyalty here his loyalty lies with her he will sacrifice everything even family for her and this is a big deal in Jewish culture Jewish culture, it was held above all else to honor your father and mother. So to turn from your father and mother and say, no, I'm going to honor my wife was huge. Our culture has lessened that. We have lessened that. We don't have that loyalty. Our loyalty is not always to our spouse, but sometimes to our friends or our family. And there are many ways we contradict this in our life. What we see here. Is that it? There are many many ways that we contradict this, and I just want to point out a couple, a few that I that I notice among that creep into our church culture—not our church, so to speak—but churches in general. Is the ball and chain jokes from men? These are from the devil. These are despicable. This is not a Christian marriage. A ball and chain joke is not a Christian marriage. A talking about slavery to a woman is not a Christian marriage. Christ says this is beautiful. Your loyalty is for your wife. So men, if you have mates who offend your wife, who insult her or or call her names, they are not your mates. And in God's grace, you should in the most godly way rebuke them. And women, if you have groups of women who gossip about their husbands and bicker and, 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 and slander your husbands, that is not godly marriage. and That is not a godly action. I encourage you in the most godly way, rebuke that group and flee from it. Marriage is the leaving of loyalties behind and, and holding fast to your husband or wife. Your loyalties are with them, solely with them. And if anyone interrupts that, if anyone hinders that, you rebuke it, you correct it, and you hold fast to your wife. Do not hold fast to your mates. Do not hold fast to your parents. Hold fast to your spouse. Let us clean up our language in the church, in this area particularly, but there are others as well. There are other areas that we need to think about. Of course, we've spoken about the roles. We need to uphold the roles, but we need to see God takes marriage seriously. It's a serious thing. And the problem that has crept into our culture is that we have taught that marriage is almost the goal of life. If you have been a part of a young adult church, if you have been a part of a church that has many young adults, marriage is projected as if, it is the goal. I've heard a marriage sermon that says, you have now entered into the promised land. That is not true. That is heretical. You will enter into the promised land when marriage is finished and the church is married to Christ. That is when you enter into the promised land. But if marriage is the goal of life, then people are there not looking for God, but looking for a spouse. Which is why we need to teach faithfully that marriage is not the goal but rather the norm. Marriage is the norm of life. That's different. God's intention is that man and woman would get married. But that's not, it, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is, of course, satisfaction in the Lord. Whatever our status. Whatever our position is in the church. Because as we unpack 1 Corinthians 7, which we have to do. We cannot preach Genesis 2 without 1 Corinthians 7 because 1 Corinthians 7 is almost Paul saying, be single. That's how it feels when we read it off the just off the page. But we've got to remember the culture in which he's writing. He's re- writing to a sexualized culture, a culture which is throwing out marriage, which is uh, sleeping with all sorts of people. It's, it's despicable. And in 1 Corinthians 7, we're not going to go through the whole lot, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul says this, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul here, the assumption is that he's talking about singleness. I wish all were as me, as like him. He was single. But we need to read it in context, and the context will give us in verse 32 and 34. He says, I want you all to be free from from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And these interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, but to the holy, uh, but how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He gives a bad picture almost of marriage, doesn't he? which means the inspired scripture would be contradicting God's creation mandate. That is not what is happening here. What Paul is saying, what Paul is teaching, is that there are gifts and different types of gifts. There's the gift of singleness and there is the gift of marriage. And they come with their own afflictions. So we need to understand and we need to come to a bit of an understanding of what gifts in scripture look like. There's a great analogy of sometimes we have gifts of rain where rain comes down and blesses the earth and it flourishes and gives life. And other times we have blessings of the sun which scorches the land and burns it up and it's almost like it dies away. It's affliction. There are two types of gifts or there's probably many more but there's two types of gifts that we want to look at here and that's the gift of blessing through prosperity, so to speak, and the, the gift of affliction, which comes with blessing of its own, but it's through growth and sanctification. What we're seeing here in Paul's teaching is that there is a gift of blessing, a, bit, a gift of growth in marriage, but there's also going to be a gift of affliction because of sin. There's a gift in singleness of unhindered, devoted time to the Lord, but there is also a gift of affliction in that you aren't married. And the natural desire in a human heart is to marry. God put that in there. God put that desire there. That is not a bad desire if you desire marriage. God has placed it in your heart. But the affliction is that you might not. Now, Paul had a special gift of celibacy. That is different to singleness. He was undivided. He was devoted to the Lord. He wasn't distracted by the idea of marriage. That is a unique gift. And he he says here, not all have this gift. I wish all were like me, but each has his own gift, one from one kind and one of another. So we're seeing very clearly that there are different gifts given to different people. Paul had a very specific gift where he was free from the desire for marriage and he would serve the Lord. When we unpack gifting, when we unpack the difference between the gift of rain, the blessing, the growth, the joys of marriage, or the gift of affliction, the suffering of two Sinners coming together and grinding on one another, and and, and causing a place of sanctification—that's hard work. But also in singleness, those who haven't been given that gift that Paul had, in singleness, we see the beautiful gift of having unhindered, undistracted time with the Lord. They don't—they don't have to worry about who's around them. They're not—they're not. They're not they're, they don't have to wait for someone to catch up. You want to go somewhere? Go somewhere. You want to serve somewhere in ministry? Serve somewhere in ministry. You don't have to encourage your wife or your spouse to come along with you. There's an unhindered blessing that comes with that, but there's also the affliction and the burden of wanting the relationship. There's also in singleness a great blessing of being able to have deep relationships with many different people. When you're married and have children, you're children your energy can be zapped you can have less time for multiple different people but singleness has the blessing of being able to connect widely and be a part of many families what we need to see in 1 corinthians 7 is that paul is saying because of the fall there are different gifts and the holy spirit will fill us with different gifts but gifts come in different ways, whether it be blessing or affliction. Both will produce good in us, but we need to have a heart of contentment in whatever situation we're in. In Philippians, Paul teaches us about contentment. He says, I've been content in plenty and in want. Now, what we need to understand about contentment is it doesn't mean equally happy in both situations. Paul was not as happy when he's in jail, when he's in poverty. He's not sitting there jumping out of his skin. And I think in the church, when we partially care for people, we go to them and we're saying, oh, we want you to be content, but what we're expecting is them to just jump up and go, yes, I'm happy. I've got joy now. You go up and partially care for a single person, or someone suffering in marriage, their, their marriage is, is, is gut-wrenching and it's affliction, it's not so much the blessing, and we say, be content. And nothing changes in their attitude or their feeling, and you're, you're, you're wondering why they're not content. They are content. Content doesn't mean that we are going to be upbeat. Content means that we're okay with the situation we're dealing with the situation. We, we love the Lord. We're satisfied in him. It's like, yeah, this sucks. But I'm moving on. I'm pushing on towards the Lord. It doesn't mean that in the it doesn't mean like we're we're in this this prosperity time where everything seems to be going good. I love in the same letter, Philippians, Paul says that his mate, Epaphroditus, who came to him to deliver food, served him was ill. And he says, God was gracious to me because you spared me from sorrow upon sorrow. Do you reckon Paul, if Epaphroditus died, would have been jumping out of his skin with joy? No. He would have been sorrowful, yet rejoicing, knowing that the Lord has a perfect and good plan. The other great picture of contentment is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, who get thrown into the fiery furnace for praying or not worshipping the idol. And they say this line to Nebuchadnezzar. They say, uh, our God can save us, our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship your statue. Isn't that incredible? Our God can save us, our God will save us, but even if he doesn't. That is contentment. In your singleness or in your marriage, contentment is saying he can He can heal your marriage. He can bring healing to the affliction that you're facing in it. He can provide a spouse for you. But even if he doesn't heal the affliction, even if he doesn't change your desires, even if he doesn't bring you a spouse, I will still worship him. I will still push towards him. Marriage is not the goal. Marriage is the norm. It's not the goal. The goal, whether married or single, is to fight for satisfaction in the Lord. Day after day. Moment after moment. Having in mind our roles, our, our, our identity in Christ that feeds into our identity as man and woman. And we're saying, God, satisfy me. As that song said, satisfy me, give me contentment. I know you can, I know you will, but even if you don't, I will worship you. I will worship you. I'm going to pray and then if you have any questions, feel free to ask them or text them and we'll take communion after that. Father God, this is, these are words that are, that are not, We have not said enough on marriage. We have not said enough on singleness, and I ask for grace, Lord, that we do not not have the time for that right now. But, Lord, I pray that if there are things unsaid, if there are things that I've said that are confusing, that you would bring them into the light, that you would bring grace upon them, that there will be grace upon each one of us as we see the public, declaration of marriage in Christ and the church. As we try to uphold it, give us grace for man and woman to be that. Give us grace in the affliction of marriage. Give us grace in the prosperity of marriage, the blessing of marriage. Give us grace in the blessing of singleness and grace in the affliction, the gift of affliction in singleness. And, Lord, I pray above all that we would be content, satisfied in you, that that would be seen in our worship, not in our outward emotions, but in our worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.